From the Ritz Cracker Display at Publix, I'm Adam Teeter. <laughs> you don't get it? Yes, I do. Because, <laughs> I mean, come on, Four Seasons Total Landscaping. It's just the yeah. best. <laughs> but no, really, from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Brick City, I'm Keith Beavers. And in Seattle, Washington, very confused, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Fair Podcast. Zach, how are you confused? They had a press conference last weekend where Rudy Giuliani came live from the Four Seasons Total Landscaping instead of the Four yeah, Seasons Hotel in I guess. So I I'm know. coming live from the Ritz Cracker Display instead of the Ritz Carlton. I, got, I got you. Carlton. <laughs> I I I feel like uh, I feel like that was it's we're like a week and a half late on this joke though. No, I think it's good. I still think it it's landed. hilarious. It landed. <laughs> I thought it was good. Um, you know, we'll have to see what it sounds like to the listeners. But anyways, guys, uh, so this is American. This podcast is all about American Wine Month. Our month at Vine Pair, we're devoting to all things us made wine i really want to thank our sponsors virginia wine cake bread sellers domain carneros and three girls uh, and i'm excited to talk to both of you about uh wine keith as our guest host vine pairs tasting director for this week uh but before we jump into that you know obviously we've been doing a, a pretty fun segment at the top of the show every week now about sort of what everyone's been drinking recently i'm assuming you guys have been drinking some dope shit as of what happened last week uh so keith what about you first well, some dope shit is correct, Adam. Uh, well, you know, American Wine Month at Vine Pair, I've been deep, deep, deep into American wine, and I'm really excited. I mean, I'm, I'm, I love Virginia wine, and I've been tasting some seriously great Virginia wine. A lot's been sent to us, and um, it was kind of great. Um, after On Saturday, after the big announcement, I sat and drank a bottle of Jefferson Cabernet, Seven, uh, Cabernet Franc, from the the area in which Thomas Jefferson allocated um, vineyard space south of Monticello to actually try to make you know America a wine growing nation, and um, they really they they re they 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 somebody came and they bought the property and they're doing great things and it's just an amazing beautiful Cabernet Franc, so it kind of made sense. And I listened to Jimi Hendrix uh, "Star Spangled Banner" while I was drinking it. <laughs> sweet zach what about you man well i've been uh i've been also kind of on the american wine train uh as i often am and uh i think for me this past week it was a lot of uh willamette valley chardonnay so pinot noir and the willamette gets a lot of the press obviously it's by far what's uh most widely grown and made there but uh i've been really excited about chardonnay from the willamette and in particular a bottle uh from Produced called Cooper Mountain, uh, their old vines Chardonnay, which I think date back to the late seventies. Uh, some of the older Chardonnay plantings in the Willamette that are still in use, and it was fucking delicious. So uh, I didn't pair it with any music, Keith. I'm sorry, Dude, but uh, but well, pretty much pretty much all that gets played in my house these days are the songs my two year old is obsessed with. So unless you really want to know how uh, Willamette Valley Chardonnay pairs with songs about bucket trucks and skid steers, go on. That's another podcast. That that's uh, a, that's yeah, another podcast. Please tell us more. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so for me, I mean that like Saturday was a day I busted out the top stuff, um, and I'd had this bottle of champagne in my uh, you know in my house for a while, and we just said fuck it. So I opened a bottle of 2006 Pierre Jouet Belle Epoque Blanc de Blanc, and it was awesome because I went out into the park in Fort Greene. Spike Lee was DJing. 
uh, which is uh, which was amazing. There was like a crazy, you know, just amount of energy, and we just like sat in the park myself, uh, my wife Naomi, and Josh, who co-founded VinePair with me, and we just like drank the the wine, and it was just really fun to to watch everyone. And then people were sharing, you know, glasses and passing it back and forth. We had we had other things too, but that was like the bottle that we popped first, you know, and it was just you know really memorable. And we actually like we brought coops out with us, nice. <laughs> like whatever. Let's like let's go <laughs> let's go full aggro here, <laughs> just like bring the glassware. Um, and it was yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. So yeah, so that was that was the most memorable thing I drank last week. Although I will say there was one other, one other amazing experience I had, which was earlier in the day actually that morning, before uh, everything got called. Um, I had a and the, this is why I was with Josh because I live in Brooklyn and Josh lives in Manhattan. Uh, so we don't normally just find each ourselves together when a random event like this occurs and everyone just decides to run out to somewhere and start drinking. Um, but we had a meeting in the morning with. Um, Brian, uh, this amazing entrepreneur who founded the sake distillery in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Cura, which now is as pretty quickly over the past few years become known as like the best sake distillery outside of Japan. Uh, sorry, sake uh, brewery, brewery. God, I'm such a jerk. Um, and I'd never been to a sake brewery before, actually. Um, and first of all, the sakis were really delicious. But again, what do I know? Um, I, I, I know I think they were very delicious. I enjoyed them, but I I'm very easily to admit that I don't know a lot about sake. But these pleased my palate, um, and it was really cool to watch the process and to like go back in the back with him and sort of understand how they actually are making sake. Um, and it's it's such an interesting. Have either of you ever been to a sake brewery before? No. I have, yeah. There's uh, one down in Oregon that I've been to. It's so interesting to watch what they're doing, and like I didn't realize how many people now are making like sort of more artisanal style, right? Like growing more artisanal style rices in certain parts of the country. Like there's a lot of really cool rice coming out of Arkansas, <laughs> which awesome. never would have thought of. Um, and it's just yeah, it was cool to watch how they sort of you know they don't have the the machine there that actually uh, you know refines the rice. Um, they actually are able to still take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of commercial sake distilleries in California, which again, I guess makes sense, right? They, he was explaining like all the stuff that we're used to as Americans that sort of turned us off on sake, like, you know, the really warm sake bomb type stuff. None of that's made in Japan. That's all being made by uh, Japanese companies, but in basically California, which I also didn't know. Um, and so, but they have all the, you know, these facilities where they can refine the rice. So they sell them to other people. Um but then there's this this one guy. He said was like a, he's a little nuts out of Chicago, I think, or maybe Indiana, uh, who started set up his own sake place as well. And he went and bought his own you know refining machine. So he'll he'll take some of the more artisanal stuff and then sell them back to people like Brooklyn Cura. Um, but then this is insane. This it's is crazy. Gross. But then like you, they soak the rice forever in water, which I didn't realize. And then I didn't realize the thing I didn't realize too is and then they cook the rice. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. And then they let a mold grow on it, and it's actually the mold that creates the sugars that allows for the fermentation. Well, it's really cool, too, because it's like this weird kind of simultaneous, like, ferment. well, not really two fermentations, but, like, the koji is producing the sugar yeah. uh, out of the starch of the rice at the same time as bacteria, or yeast, I'm sorry, are fermenting the sugar. So it's this weird, like, yeah, it... it if you, as you maybe saw some in process, as I have, it absolutely does not look like something you would want to ingest. It no, it doesn't. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's it's literally like they're just letting like mold grow on rice, <laughs> and then, and then yeah, and then when they go to like you know obviously brew it, it it then comes out the way that it is. But he also like he had us taste some wild stuff. So first of all, a thing I didn't realize was that I mean I guess it makes sense, but that you know sake doesn't really age. Um, 
he said that it can, but not in a way that you would think about with wine or things like that, right? Like once it's basically at cold temperature, it is what it is. Um, he said there's some funk, there's some people doing some stuff in like Japan where they, you know, are letting it sit for for years and years, and it just it changes. It just may not be like the thing that everyone wants to drink. It I kind of think it becomes a thing where the same kind of people have like now a taste for Brett or stuff, right? It's like you get a taste for that kind of like weird funk that develops after the sake gets old. And there's definitely like a small population of sake drinkers that like that, but not a huge group. Um, but that was super interesting to understand. And then they're actually, they, they dry hopped a sake. Oh, cool. And he poured it for us. And I literally thought that I was drinking liquid grapefruit juice. It was the craziest thing I'd ever tasted. And it was pink because it pulls out the, the colors from the hops, which is weird because hops are green, but for whatever reason, it ends up like a pinkish orange color, orange color. And they almost sell it as a rosé. And then of course they're doing other stuff too. Like they're making like a pet Nat Saki. I was like, here we go. You really were in Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah, I was in Brooklyn. Uh, I was in industry city. Um, but yeah, but you know, just shout out to them because they're, they're doing really cool stuff. And, uh, I, I thought it was delicious. Alcohol on, on the dry hop. It was like 12% or something like that. 12, 14. So, I mean, it's, it'll hit you, but not in the way that like, you know, other things will. It was, it was very tasty. I was, I was very impressed. And, you know, they're of course trying to make sakis that, you know, they're not encouraging you to then use as a, you know, spirit substitute for cocktails and stuff, right? Their whole goal is to have you, um, you know, drink the sake as, it is. Um, and also their, their big push too, is to take it out of like the American idea that you're supposed to have it in, uh, you know, those little short sake glasses. Um, and you know, out of, they, they, they obviously serve theirs in, in wine glasses and in, in smaller ones, more like what you would think of with, I don't like know, a, a, like a white wine or something right at a wedding. It's kind of like the, the way I think of what they, the kind of glass size they use. But the, he explained to me too, where the small sake glass comes from. And it has nothing to do with like aromas or anything like that. It's that in Japanese culture, um, the more you're serving the guest, the more pleasure it's it gives you. And so, if it's a smaller vessel, you have to you serve your your guest more often. And so that's the only reason the sake glass is small is because we're like constantly, you know, you would constantly be filling your person's glass, and so that's 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 you showing yourself as being a very good host. Um, but of course, Americans, as Brian joked, we see that glass and we're like, sweet, it's a shot. <laughs> we just like, you know, throw it back as opposed to the way that they consume it. But yeah. This has been a super interesting and I look forward yeah. to next year's American Sake Month. I know, totally. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, thanks, Zach. God, you didn't get the rich cracker joke. Now you just hate on my sake stuff. But no, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, let's, let's, tra- let's transition. <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk about American Wine Month. So, I mean, all of us, we live in, we're from and live in different parts of the country. I mean, I've, I lived in the South for a while, uh, you know, then went to school in the South and moved up here. Zach, you're from, you know, the, the Northwest. And then obviously went to school in New York. Uh, Keith's from all over Maryland, New York, you know, yeah, ever. And then, and then came to New York. But so, you know, and we've also traveled a lot. And I think what's really interesting about the United States is that, first of all, as we know, there's bonded wineries in all 50 states. As as we we noted Zach before we started the podcast uh, recording it, you know, just being a bottle winery doesn't necessarily mean that they're making wine from uh, you know from vinifera, but they are making some sort of wine. Um, but there's there's really cool stuff happening all over the country, and I think you know it's what's so exciting about it is that it, it shows it's not just about three or four of the regions that probably everyone knows. 
right? And there's really amazing stuff coming from everywhere. And and I guess my question to both of you guys to just start this is like, do you is there such a thing as American wine? Like, what do you think American wine is? Like, if someone said to you American wine, what would you immediately think of? I mean, for me, I tr- I believe American wine is wine made from grapes that are not from here, um, by people that are you know not from here. We were all came from somewhere else to be here, unless you're an indigenous you know indigenous culture. And I think that American wine for me is defined by the ability to grow vines that are meant for the soils in which they're grown in and the wine made in such a skillful way that it represents that area, whether it's a Viognier, whether it's Petit Mensang, whether it's Cab Franc, whether it's Gruner Vetliner, it doesn't matter. Um, in te- you know, in Texas, they're doing Tempranillo and people dig it, but they're also making fruit wine, <laughs> you know, so... I I see American wine as this sort of wild west mentality, but now finally with technology focusing, not technology, but just more information about science and technology, focusing more on the soil, more on where we grow grapes and why it's good to grow them there. And then, you know, making good wine. So that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, that's how I see it. And there's also places in the United, and we're not done yet. We're, we're just now, I mean, the Petaluma gap in Sonoma was awarded in, in 2017 in Washington state. I just found out there's two weeks ago, two more AVAs were awarded um, in the Columbia Valley, you know, so we're still working on it, but I think that's kind of what defines it to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, Keith, you, you capture a really important piece here, which I think is is what I often think about as well, which is um, this idea of, you know, whether you want to use the Wild West metaphor, or to me, it's just sort of this idea that, you know, th- there was no uh, existing wine culture in this country in terms of growing or consuming, um, you know, really uh, until quite recently. And, and some of what did exist was wiped out by prohibition and was slow to recover. And what's been really exciting for me about American wine is that you are we are now at a place with the industry where it's it's so much more developed and mature than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, so that not everyone has to feel like they have to make a wine that refers to Europe. I mean, yes, the the varieties, the the cultivars, the clones, and the and of course the species itself uh is European in nature, but we are not necessarily seeing uh, wine regions in the United States feel too confined by established European styles by saying, oh, well, in uh, Bordeaux, they plant these X number of varieties. And so those are the only things we can plant here. Obviously, you still see a lot of that. Um, I don't mean that those wines have disappeared. Of course, they're still very popular and and rightfully so. But you do see experimentation with all kinds of different varieties and people saying, well, why can't I grow a Spanish variety and a French variety and an Austrian variety and a Croatian variety all in my vineyard? And, you know, I think they'll work here. I understand. I, I want to make wines that that are of these various styles or from these varieties. And I can do that. And that's that's a freedom that just does not exist most other places. You know, a few other places in the New World have, have sort of similar uh, spirits. But here in the U.S., we have, you know, this almost endless amount of land that could be potentially converted to viticulture should someone want to do it. Yeah, I think I think that's that's true. I think the other thing that makes American wine so interesting is that this country is just so big. It's basically that every state is almost its own country. So, you know, there's what works in 
you know, the Finger Lakes may not necessarily work in Texas, right? But that's okay because there's other things that can work. And I think the thing that started to define American wine for me, which I really like, is that over the last, you know, decade, two decades even, there's become less of a focus by, you know, a lot of the really top producers and then everyone else has followed of having to make a wine in America that tastes like a wine from the old world, right? It's like, no, the Cabernet from Napa tastes like Cabernet from Napa. It doesn't, you know, there, there's, there's less of that now. I, I remember even like early on in, in my wine journey, I would go to like, you know, the North Fork and the winemaker would say like, yeah, like we're really going for like a, you know, a right bank Bordeaux. And now you don't hear that as much. Your winemaker is saying, no, this is, this is a North Fork wine, right? This is, that's what it is. And becoming just more confident that, you know, yes, we can take the grapes from Europe and they don't have, and the wines don't have to be copies of the wines from Europe to be considered high quality and to be considered, you know, best in class and all of those things, right? They can be their own thing. And what's cool about that is the, the, the fact that what we did was in trying to emulate European wine, we created our own styles, you know, the, which is, which is really kind of, kind of cool. I mean, I know the Meritage thing never really took <laughs> where, you know, in California, there was this word called Meritage. And if you, you had a Meritage, if you used all the Bordeaux varieties and stuff, but we ended up making our own stuff and, and make, creating our own style, which is, which is really awesome. Totally. Yeah. And I think actually to, to the point that you were making, Adam, as well, I think even more excitingly, now you not only do you not hear wineries uh, and, and wine producers, wine regions say, ah, oh, yes, you know, our, our wines are comparable to the wines of pick your French uh, region of choice. But even even something like Napa, which is obviously an American uh, wine region, I, I don't even hear as many wineries uh, say, oh, we're making a, a Cabernet, you know, like a Napa Cab. You know, th there is a, a real understanding that what makes a lot of these parts of the country that are growing grapes and making wine so exciting is that they are their own thing. And yes, there's going to always be some similarities. I mean, to some extent, the 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 character of each of these varieties or blends is going to show through. But it's cool that whether you're in Virginia or Washington or, or Oregon or Texas or Arizona or any other place, you know, I, I think the the more that that producers in those places can be comfortable saying, you know, we think we're making a wine that's really representative of this place and and of you know of this uh, of these varieties of this place of this vintage, you know, those are the wines that I think all of us get excited about, and and the wines that are harder to get excited about are someone who's trying to make uh, a. a replica of something that already exists i mean yeah if you can make a wine that tastes like you know chateau margot and it's way cheaper i guess that's cool but really the most exciting thing for me is to make a wine that is is clearly and interestingly of the place it's from and and you know this country has a lot of interesting cool places as you mentioned it's adam it's this incredibly vast country with incredibly different uh, you know, geology, climate, uh, you know, all these things that that make for incredibly uh, remarkable wine regions. And, and we're just still scratching the surface. I mean, you know, Keith, you mentioned how there's new AVAs being awarded all over. And I mean, I was excited to see that uh, Hawaii is now petitioned for its first AVA. That's I have crazy. never tried. The only wine I've ever tried from Hawaii is a pineapple wine, which actually kind of good. Um, but but this is vinifera to be clear but um but i think that's super exciting and like we don't know i mean there's all kinds of possibilities still out there and and the cool thing about wine is that it rewards exploration and experimentation and taking a chance of course you know not all of them will work out but there's always that possibility my question to you guys is 
you know, over the last few, you know, over the last decade, we've seen like sort of new regions in Europe that have always existed, right? But like have popped really big in the US and like more money's, you know, flooded in. So like I'm thinking about, for example, like the Jura, right? All of a sudden, a bunch of songs are talking about it and it was everywhere. Uh, Sicily, specifically Etna, right? And then all of a sudden now you have Burgundy producers buying, you know, land there. You have, you know, Barbaresco and Barolo producers buying land there. Um, what do you guys think, if there was a region that you think was going to pop next in the US and you think, oh my God, this is the region that's going to pop and every single person's going to realize how great it is and there's going to be money flooding in there. Is there one? Or, or you know, could you think of one? Yeah. I mean, what's cool about, you know, Washington state seems to be a really big sort. It's like the, what is it, the second largest wine producing region in the country. Uh-huh. And there's been some very significant, you know, uh, investment there starting from back in the day with Eroica and, and all that. And I think there's already, we're already seeing investment in Virginia. So to think of a brand new space, I mean, I, I would no, I'm not, I'm not saying brand new because look at Edna existed forever, right? It just all of a sudden, Oh, I see. What you know, saying. who knows what it was. It was someone saying like, Oh my gosh, these are like Burgundy. And all of a sudden everyone just started dumping money. Right. And everyone sort of, you know, and it all, and it became the, the thing people were talking about. Do you, and I'm just wondering, do we think, what are a few regions in the U S we think that, there could be maybe maybe there isn't yet. Uh, maybe there is. I I agree with you that the the thing I think is most right for it is Washington, and that's honestly just because for whatever reason, uh, and Zach's gonna think I'm like kissing his ass right now, but, <laughs> but for whatever reason, like that state's just flown under the radar for a really long time for no explainable reason. You know, like it's except for the Allow fact that me to explain why I think well, please because I because the, the explanation I've always heard is that just like Oregon kind of you know got got there first or whatever and people start talking about the pinot noirs and people just forgot that washington was there but i'm sure there's a better explanation than that well i think that the the biggest thing that's changed about the wine industry and my time in it and, and the way that consumers tend to think is one of the things that worked against washington for a long time was that it had no clear-cut like variety or style of wine that was like the the signature and you know there was uh there's certainly plenty of famous and highly priced washington cabernets and cabernet based blends um pre-sideways there was a lot of emphasis on merlot and i think washington merlot is actually really an exciting uh wine for sure but 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 the strength of washington is sort of uh, almost like the strength of the u.s in a microcosm that it's the diversity and it's all the different things that can be made and we've only i think just in the last few years reached a place where in the american wine market there's actual interest in a lot of different kinds of wines a lot of different varieties a lot of different styles and so People may say, you know, there are still the diehard, I only drink Pinot Noir, I only drink Cabernet, I only drink Chardonnay folks. But most wine people that I meet these days or talk to, they're interested in trying something new. And that's where I think Washington has an incredible um, possibility, which is to say, hey, we are growing you know, over a hundred different varieties. There are people focusing on all kinds of different things in the state. There are wineries that focus exclusively on Spanish varieties. There are wineries that focus exclusively on white wines um, from from the Rhone Valley and south of France. There are wineries that that do just about everything kind of in in their own way, uh, you know, at various different sizes. And and the thing to come to your question about a region, Adam, I actually think one of the most exciting places in the country and a place that I think the same kind of people who got excited about the Jura will are or will be excited about is the Columbia Gorge. And and the biggest reason for that is that it is um such an incredibly um unusual 
Appalachian and growing region for, for Washington. Say, right? Yeah. So it's on the border between Washington and Oregon. And unlike the vast majority of Washington, it's actually relatively cool and a little bit more wet. So it isn't as it isn't as much of a sort of high desert environment like like much of eastern Washington. It's much more like almost like the Loire Valley in France in terms of its climate, um, but with a very different geology and a lot more elevation. Um, and so it's a place that can grow. Um, you know, you're seeing people make amazing whites um, uh, from, you know, both well-known varieties like Chardonnay, but also Gruner Veltliner. Uh, people are doing interesting things with like Takai Friolano. And then you're also seeing a lot of interesting kind of more cool climate style reds, which has not been a big thing in Washington state for sure. Uh, but there's interesting Pinot Noir there. There's amazing Gamay. Uh, you're seeing people do fun things with Cabernet Franc. Um, and, and as you move to the eastern edge of the Columbia Gorge, you do get a little bit more like what we associate with the rest of Washington. So a little bit hotter, but you still have that real river influence. So it is its own area. And, and what's cool is, is you have all the, the other thing that I think draws people to places like the Jura is the producers are all pretty small there. There's no big wineries. So you, you have this sense of, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the, the wines are, are, are niche and they're, and they're small production. And so, you know, it's not like, unfortunately it makes it hard to find some of those wines, you know, around the country for sure. But it is for people who are interested in exploring, it's an area where there's a lot of kind of interesting small to medium sized wineries who are doing fun things there. Um, and that's definitely one area, again, because of my proximity in, in part that I think is, is ripe for more discovery around the, the country. Well, I think based on your question, Adam, so that this is what I mean, what it sounds, what it feels like to me is the United States is we're still working on it. You know, we have a lot of work to do because we had, you know, in the nine, in 1980, well, 1980, the first AVA was awarded to Augusta, Missouri. And then eight months later, in 1981, the first AVA in California was awarded to Napa Valley. And since then, we've had 224 AVAs across the country. And for a long time, like I said earlier, you know, we didn't, we, people were forcing vines into, into soils that didn't really work so much. But I think what's, what, what, it's not really about what the next exciting region is. I think it's more about how we as an American wine drinking culture approach the places that exist. Maybe, for example, um, Temecula has awesome wine. No one knows Temecula. Paso Robles, which is, I was waiting for it. Waiting for it. There it is. I am in love with that AVA. I think it's an absolute phenomenon that it kind of flies under the radar because there's a few brand names that that are jiving on the American market that you can find in supermarkets and wine shops, but there are st- there's also stuff that you know you can't really get outside of Paso. There's things you can't get out of Temecula. Things you can't get out of Columbia Gorge. Right. All production stuff. So I think that one of the things I think would be really, and this is again we're in a pandemic and it's different, but like at, you know that's not it's not going to last forever. I guess what I'm saying is like going we we get to go to these places and see what these skilled winemakers are making and i think like the next thing with american drinking culture is to explore the diversity of the wines in the area let's get people into long island gruner Vedliner, you know and and and, and it, I, the thing is if you can't get it well the dtc the, the direct to customer thing is is getting a little bit better i think with totally it is you know but i think that getting celebrating what's 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 fun and that actually in doing so we actually can educate the american wine consumer on more varieties different kinds of cultivars and stuff like what's gruner veltliner well it's this austrian variety and it's really awesome in long island you know so that's i think i think that's kind of where where we should go next yeah i I, look i think i think what's what's difficult for people and i would say you know the the best sort of advice 
I could give about American wine is don't be scared to take a risk. Um, and don't turn your nose up just because you hear of a state and you've never heard that it makes wine before. Right. Yeah. Because there's, because I, because I guarantee you there's someone in that state making really great wine. Um, you know, like when I've heard people like, Oh, Connecticut, they make wine. That can't be good. Or New Jersey, New Jersey makes wine. You know, there's apparently, I mean, I haven't, I, I literally have not, which is a shame because I'm so close to New Jersey, but there, you know, there's apparently a lot of amazing wineries in South, South Jersey, you know, you know, and yeah, you're in New Jersey in brick city or like, you know, Pennsylvania in, in Lancaster County, where my wife is from, from like, she's from Lancaster, the city, but like in the County, there's a, you know, a, an Amish guy that ripped up his farm and planted vineyards. And honestly, like some of his wines, he, he like, it makes a Merlot. That's amazing. You know? So I think the other area to think about, and, and I'm super excited about this, and we, Adam, I think you and I like jokingly mentioned this way back in one of our very first podcasts, yeah. but is like a lot of the the states around the Great Lakes area where I think there's really interesting potential for, you know, whether it's in Michigan um, or in uh, potentially even in like Wisconsin, you know, again, you know, as things start to change climactically, as places get a little bit warmer potentially and drier during the summer, I, I think, you know... W- one thing that America doesn't have a lot of are classic wine regions that are near large bodies of water that are not oceans. Yeah. Um, and, and when you compare that to Europe, you know, the, the Finger Lakes are the one exception. And we and we they think the Finger Lakes are super exciting in part because of the kind of possibility space that 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 kind of viticulture provides. And and I think you could see some really interesting wine coming out of those those states in the next 10 to 20 years. I, I know there's some people planting, um, you know, one of the challenges is for a lot of those um, areas is that traditionally they get so cold over the winter that there's only a few varieties you can really plant that are that are that uh, cold hardy. But uh, I think you've seen more and more development in understanding uh, rootstocks and, and ways to kind of shelter vines. I, I That's an area that I have my eye on. I, I've, I think I've tried a couple of Rieslings from Michigan. That's oh, yeah. the extent of what I've tried from the Great Lakes. But but I'm I'm really excited to see if there's more investment and interest in, totally. in putting putting some time into those yeah, uh, states. Yeah, Charlie and, and his uh, no, like no residual, no RS, no residual sugar Riesling from like just north of Traverse City is just incredible. And what's awesome is his winery is located in an old um, asylum. They took this asylum up in Michigan and it closed down and they're repurposing it. And his, he, his winery is an old laundry building. It's really intense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of opportunities, right? I mean, we've talked about Virginia a bunch. Um, obviously, they, they sponsored you know, American wine month, but I, you know, we've been hot on Virginia for a long time. I think there's a potential for it to be one of the great wine regions of the country. And especially on the East coast, there's just a lot of stuff happening there. That's really exciting. And especially as you start, you know, as the winers are getting more up into the mountains, into the actual Shenandoah mountains, they're finding the cooler temperatures, you know, they just, they just have to deal with more stuff that I think, I think that's, that's, and that's the thing that's going to be difficult, right. Is like, as some of these wine regions uh, expand, how much, are we going to be willing to also sort of be okay with some of the things they need to do to be able to make good wine? So, you know, in Virginia, they have to deal with a lot of rot and they have to deal with a lot of humidity and stuff like that. And so being 100% organic is re- almost impossible, right? Whereas it's almost, it's very easy in Napa, right? So is, is sustainable going to be enough, right? Are we gonna be okay if they spray once or twice a year? Cause they have to, um, you know, I don't know what it's like in Texas. I just know Texas is super hot, but maybe it's <laughs> it's it's a dry heat. I'm not. I don't remember where it becomes a dry heat. I know that I always hear Arizona is. So, like, you know, there's there's going to be things they have to do. There's going to be things they have to do if they, we want to be able to have you know some of these different wine regions you know succeed. But I, I mean, look, I think it's crazy that we haven't seen more. Just you know, you look at certain regions like like New Mexico, right? 
and the success of Gruet and how amazing the, those sparkling wines are. And the fact that we haven't had others, you know, yet, or I'm sure there are, but just other people haven't followed in, in a really dramatic way surprises me, to be honest. And I wonder if there still is, and, and that's why I asked my original question, which was, you know, where do you guys think the money's going to come from or, or what region do you see a money flooding into? And I wonder if it has a lot more to do with bias, right? Because, you know, there's there's this amazing sparkling wine being made in New Mexico and yet like all the brands aren't flooding and be like, we should be doing that too. Like, look at what they're doing. You know, this is, this is a, a quality of wine that we can't believe they're being able to, to produce and at this price point, right? Whereas when someone says, you know, Italy and it's Etna, Everyone's like, oh yeah, of course Italy. Yeah, dump the money in, right? Or all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's it's that bias of like, well, of course it's the old world. And so they've always been making wine. So yeah, we all forgot about this region, but it's always been there. And like, you know, is it like easier for some people to to accept for whatever reason when honestly, like if you can produce great wine in a region, like why does it matter how long that region's been producing wine? Especially because if you look at like the Sicilian you know, history of producing wine for a very long time. It was very, very bad. It was bad. Yeah. You know, it was right. So well, how did that change? And I, and I, the only thing that I can think of is it's the bias, uh, right. just that, that European bias. And I think the other piece of this is that, you know, one, one thing we haven't talked about and, and I don't mean to get into a long conversation about, but a part of the American wine experience also has to do with tourism and visiting wineries. And I do think that one of the reasons you've seen a bias towards certain parts of the country is because those are, places that are convenient for tourists, that are otherwise accessible, that are beautiful. And it may be the case that, you know, the beauty of the high desert in New Mexico, I think is actually very striking, but it's not as much of an obvious tourist destination as Napa Valley. Um, it also doesn't have the density of other stuff to do. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's some, re there's a bad reason for that. And I think sometimes it's hard to disentangle in, in the U.S. the difference between regions that are great wine destinations and great wine producing regions. And those two things can be synonymous, but they're not always. And some of the places that I'm excited about as regions that could produce great wine may never be places that are high on anyone's to travel list. And, and so uh, that is also true in Europe, to be fair. I mean, I love the wines from Emilia Romagna and I love the food from Emilia Romagna in Italy, but it is a not a pretty place. It's basically flat and full of pig shit. And so, um, <laughs> you know, not, not every winery. Good. And not every wine region is not every winery and not every wine region is going to be beautiful or easy to access. But I think what we should be asking of these of these regions, whether they're new or old, is that they be focused on quality and on producing the best wine they can. And it's our job as as journalists, as drinkers, to to find those wines, to to talk about them when they do merit discussion and and to you know, yeah, mention if it's a great tourist destination or not. But, you know, we're all finding, obviously, in this year without tourism, kind of, that there are other things that matter. Well, the thing is, the Finger Lakes is not easy to get to. And the Niagara Escarpment is not the easiest thing. It's seven hours from New York drive, you know. But it has become the one of the national focuses of one grape, Riesling. You know, but but that, you know, there. I think we we can do it. It's just a matter of like, like Adam said, the, the, the bias, we need people to focus on it. And that's the thing is it's always been like in, in Europe, there's always been, it, Sicily was mostly known for bulk wine, but there was always a small producer making awesome shit in, in, in Sicily. You know, there's always somebody down in Vittoria making great frappato. And then, you know, one day he's like, oh my gosh, I actually have, a, a, I have actually, like people see me now. It just takes a long right. time. 
And Gruet, you know, it's it's it is unfortunate, but that was a very special thing where this guy from Champagne, you know, the family comes over and sees some sees potential there. And I just don't, I wonder if like they found like the best spot <laughs> for those, but totally they don't they don't know nobody wants to compete with the with the amount of amazing wine they make there. But you know, I, I don't know. I mean, or Arizona. I mean, I had an amazing Malvasia from Arizona, and I, I just in Arizona and the, the the AVAs in Arizona are not too far away from the you know large cities, so. I think it just, like you said, it just takes time and we are, we are a young nation. We're only 240 something years old. We had 10 years of prohibition. We weren't really getting back into, you know, dry red wine and even white wine at all until like the late 1960s. We're still kind of figuring it out. And I think that it, it makes sense that we would attach ourselves to, okay, well, Pinot Noir, that's Willamette. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. Cab, that's Napa. I'm going to do that. Riesling, that's Washington. Okay, well, now it's New York. Okay. And you you kind of like, that's what we we needed that. That's kind of how, you know, the point system came across. That's how these, 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 these are things that America needed at a time when we were just trying to re-understand what we lost for 10 years. And I think that it's just a matter of time before we really get a sense of this, but there's an excitement that has to happen to make it happen. I mean, Virginia has been making wine for a long time. Jim law has been there since like what, 1978. And he's, and I, you know, Adam, you and I got to know Jim law, like what, six years ago, <laughs> you know, eight years ago. I mean, before I started vine pair. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like so- eight, eight or nine years ago, I think you're the one who introduced me or to him or somehow we found him together, but like, yeah. And, and he's highly respected, but yeah, but then again, he doesn't care about, being known outside of Virginia. <laughs> right. But he mentored a bunch of people who do care. Cool. And, you know, of course, Barbers, Barbersville helped too. That's, I guess that's one of those investments where Barbersville was like, okay, we see, there was a family, like we see what's going on. We see, we want to invest in that area. I just think it's going to take some time, but what's cool about it is it's very exciting. It's very exciting to think that in the future, we're going to have more wine coming from the United States that is going to be more diverse and more fun to explore. I mean, like I'm going to go back to Paso real quick, Adam, if you're cool with that. No, it's, just please go back to Paso. <laughs> you, go to pa- you know, Paso is in this little sort of like plain area. And it used to be a place where um, the whole story is outlaws could go into Paso and, and not be bothered because it's in this like little patch of, of, of nothing. And actually it was founded by two dudes and Jesse James's um, uncle actually. And it, it is this place that has kind of always been sort of disconnected from everybody else. And it, it, when it became known to the rest of the United States, it was known mostly for Cabernet Sauvignon and Zin, Zinfandel. But when I went to Paso, I drank, there's a grape called Claret that is a blending varietal from, from France. I drank a 15, a, a, a Claret that was 15 months on the lees like a, like a muscadet. And it was absolutely delicious. I had a peak bull de Pinay, which is another native grape from the Southern part of France. I had a Falangina that is a native grape to Campania that was absolutely stunning. And it was made in uh, you know, skin fermenting as an orange wine. It, it was like, it, you're just like, you're, my mind was blown. So you, I had to go there to, to actually enjoy it. And I'm hoping that at some point we can actually figure out, like you said, Zach, figure out this tourism thing. That's who we are as a country. We are, we are, tourism is what we do. And, you know, I hope we can figure it out because there's so much to be had in these small little pockets of America and these little AVAs. I mean, I know Paso is huge, but I'm like other places that, that might have stunning, amazing wine, like Malvasia from Arizona, but it's just not on the market. 
No, I think I think Zach's point about tourism is really important because um, I do think that's what's helped a lot of the regions. And I think that that's what then causes your mind to be blown because you show up there and you have a great meal and you, you know, like every wine region needs like one good restaurant. You know what I mean? Just something like that to to tie it together. Because, I mean, I remember when, you know, I first went to oh, – I can't even remember where, where it was. I think it was – yeah, it was Paso actually, Keith. When I went to Paso driving down the coast and like – no, no winery really had a, a place to tell us to go to. This was like eight or nine years ago for lunch, and there just wasn't really any. And so, like, we wound up going to like a kind of okay cafe, and you know, I, I was like, oh man, there's such potential here once they get that high end restaurant or once they get that place where like it all goes together because that is what you know Napa and Sonoma have going for them. That is what you know other regions have going for them is just this ability to to give you that one that 360 degree experience now Paso of, finally has it exactly and so and i think i think that matters uh as annoying as that is right it does it does um and so yeah i mean i think but there's there's just so much stuff i mean just talking i mean we could talk for another 45 minutes about it i, I think know. <laughs> you know so much stuff about american wine is really exciting right now and the the best thing is to just you know get out there and try to drink it. And if you, you know, if you can't get out there now because of the pandemic, totally understandable. So get online. Just read. As you were saying, Keith. Yeah. And, and hit up DTC, read our reviews. We try to write about a lot of different wine regions. If you're an American wine region that we don't write about, get up, you know, get in touch with us. You know, if you're, if if you're from a, we want to taste your wine, like send it to us, you know, um, send it to Zach too. Cause you know, he's in Seattle. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, we, we want to taste your wine. I mean, I think, we we have no bias here, and I think that's the 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 thing that's most important for anyone thinking about getting into these other regions is like don't go with a bias because I'm promising you there's someone in in these regions that's producing really really great juice. I'm getting Mulder Thurgau from Oregon coming in tomorrow. There you go, crazy. Well, guys, this has been an awesome conversation. Keith, thanks for being our our, our guest co-host this thanks week. For having me, um, yeah, Zach. I'll see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Winston. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.